It's a joy to be with you today and to see what the Lord has done through these years. To think of five years uh, in one sense, it seems like a long time ago and so much has taken place and yet in another sense it's gone quite quickly, hasn't it? And we just rejoice at what God has done and is doing here. And uh, please know that there is a, a church south of here that prays diligently for you and for your advance in the, in the truth and the gospel and just worshiping with you today. I, I know those prayers are, are being answered and we thank the Lord for it. Thank the Lord for each of you and just pray that uh, this will be a day of rejoicing and thanksgiving. And I come to you uh, to just consider together Luke chapter 23 and a very familiar text to us but I trust one in which we can feed our souls and, and be encouraged in our walk with the Lord. We've, in fact, sung today of this very passage and, and the one individual that we'll zero in on uh, next to Christ in his death. But travel with me in your mind's eye first to a warm spring evening in Jerusalem on the night uh, Jesus of Nazareth is betrayed. He shares his last supper, that last Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. There's a lengthy period of instruction that takes place. Then Jesus leads a small band into the dark of night. And as we know of what Jerusalem was like at that time and during that festival, they would have wound their way through the city with teeming with pilgrims that were there and uh, rejoicing and celebrating and just a time of relaxation and family gatherings and the like, and they would have been fairly anonymous as they passed through the streets. They then pass through a gate in the city wall and descend that steep slope down to the Cadrone Valley and the little creek that is there, and then working their way up and ascending the Mount of Olives to that garden as known as Gethsemane. Judas Iscariot leads a mob of religious leaders and their enforcers at that time to arrest Jesus and then march him back to Jerusalem. Assembled in the high priest's spacious home, the Jewish authorities interrogate and condemn Jesus in an illegal middle-of-the-night trial. Early, early that next morning, they deliver Jesus over to the Roman authorities, demanding his execution. And eventually the Roman governor of Judea unjustly condemns Jesus to death and parades him through the streets to the place of crucifixion. We pick up the account there in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away and put to death with him. Luke identifies these two others as criminals. The the Greek word is just workers of evil, so it was a pretty broad word, but we do have uh, the aid of other gospel writers who speak of them as robbers, both Matthew and Mark. They were lawbreakers, but as robbers, these weren't guys that had taken a, a leg of lamb from the local market. These were not guys that had pinched somebody's carpet while they were gone out of their home. These were pretty wicked men. They had done some pretty bad things. We don't know if they were just common grave robbers or highway robbers, or maybe they had been Jewish loyalists who raided a Roman arsenal. Whatever they had done, it wasn't small because they were tortured to death for their crime. And in verse 41, we see that one of them at least understands that this was fair treatment because of what they had done. So we're talking about some very godless men that are being crucified here with Jesus. 
But think of that for a moment. Is this not how God so often surprises us? I mean, it's, it's, would you, if Jesus, the Lamb of God, is dying, this the first half of the most important event in history, and you plop two guys next to him to kind of take away the attention from Jesus as he dies. He should be given center stage. And why put anyone else on the stage with him? Why have two criminals die next to him? We know that God is sovereign. We know that he has orchestrated all of this. He ordains what comes to pass. He's providentially led such that there's two thieves who die with Jesus. Why is that? Well, we could say one reason, and very certainly Isaiah 53 and verse 12, it fulfills prophecy. He was numbered with transgressors, although you could say, well, that's just his death, his execution. But here, very directly, he's numbered with transgressors. But looking forward, we see that there is a more specific reason, and we'll work that out as we consider the text here together. Verse 33 And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. The skull, a rocky outcropping that resembled the shape of a skull bone. This place was not chosen for its morbid symbolism, although that probably wasn't a bad idea for the Roman soldiers. But the reason it's chosen is because it's in a prominent place. It's near a city gate, and it would, that was how Rome did execution, was to make sure that everybody got the point. Here's what happens to those who violate the laws of Rome. The skull, or Golgotha, was situated just outside that city gate. Today it's canopied by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and don't get me started on that, but uh, it is a place of dead ritualism. It's a place of sappy mysticism. All kinds of weird stuff is going on over that site. But this building just covers the area uh, where we believe Jesus was crucified and buried. But what is important for us is that they crucified him. And how comfortably we speak these simple words. But what horrors they convey. Crucifixion was designed to be the most shocking, torturous execution imaginable. The upright post was seated in the earth, standing vertically. Then Jesus was forced to lay with his bloodied back on the ground, his arms then stretched wide and spikes driven through his wrists into the crossbeam. Then that crossbeam was lifted from the earth in the crooks of two forked poles, Jesus' body dangling from it, and then attached in some way, either resting upon or nailed to that upright post, a spike driven through his feet, pinning him to the beam. So these three men are convulsing in pain. Severed nerves are screaming, muscles are cramping with no means of relief. Dehydration, the loss of blood, produced a desperate thirst Even to the fine detail, insects feasting on the blood, the flesh, and the eyes with no capacity to brush them away. Yet in the midst of these unimaginable tortures, the focus of Christ is not inward but outward. 
It's amazing. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The them, I think, connects to verse 33. Those who crucified him, the Roman soldiers, they cast lots to divide his garments, verse 34. So it's these Roman soldiers, it seems specifically, that he's speaking of. He prays for his executioners. We have, they have no idea who he is. They don't really understand the injustice that they are inflicting on the only sinless man that had ever lived. Now notice, though, that Jesus does not forgive his executioners. He asks the Father to do so. In fact, the Greek imperfect tense indicates that Jesus kept on praying this prayer. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Perhaps the Father answered this prayer by preserving the soldiers from the just penalty of this particular sin, this atrocity. But ultimately, the Father would answer this prayer for anyone who came to repentant faith in Christ. This wasn't a place of vindictiveness on Christ's part, but a place of forgiveness. And it seems that at least one of the soldiers was tracking that way, that way by day's end. Matthew 27 and verse 54. But think of it again. Jesus labors in prayer for the forgiveness of men who are torturing him in a horrendous miscarriage of justice. That's our Savior. What possible reason could we give for refusing to pursue forgiveness with our own brothers and sisters in Christ? What wrong has any believer or unbeliever committed against us that is worse than the injustice that Jesus suffered as he's being tortured? But whether you are born again believer of Christ or still resisting him, let us all recognize that this is how Jesus relates to sinners. Whatever crime is committed against him, his heart is filled with forgiveness. The Lamb of God hanging as a sacrifice in the place of sinners and prays that God will receive this sacrifice as the payment for their sins. The sins of all who will repent of their sin and trust Jesus as Savior. And so we see the question so clearly. Have you received the gift of God's forgiveness won on the cross and secured by the resurrection of Jesus? This is the question that just speaks out to us from this text. Christ the sacrifice, Christ the one who forgives, no matter what we have done to offend God. Have you received that grace? While suffering intense torture, Jesus thinks of the good of others. But this is certainly not how people respond to him, is it? In the midst of his suffering, we see in verse 34 that they cast lots to divide his garments. That is, the soldiers who execute Jesus, the most torturous death imaginable, and they're sitting there in plain sight gambling for his clothes. They care nothing about him. It is a scene of vile disrespect. In verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The rulers, that is also the rulers, were mocking him. 
Matthew 27 indicates that the passerby, just to be certain of this, that the passersby were also ridiculing and deriding Jesus. You say you are the Son of God, as He claimed in Luke 22 at His trial. You say you will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Why don't you start by saving yourself? You're not doing so well. You've come to deliver Israel? Deliver yourself, fool. This is what he was hearing from below as he died and spoke words of forgiveness. Now we also know by Matthew's account that both robbers joined in this ridicule, both of them hurling insults at him. We see again the Roman soldiers in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews, which only inspired them to mock him more. They were soldiers after all. They're not robots. And it's best for everyone's psyche to say, this guy deserves to die. You don't want to execute an innocent man. And so they convince themselves and join in on the ridicule. And even one of the criminals that's crucified with him ridicules him. Verse 39, one of the criminals who is railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Are you not Messiah? Save yourself and save us. Christ, Messiah. I I think that this response indicates some degree of sophistication regarding the promises of God under the Old Covenant. This robber's understanding, this one claims to be God-sent Messiah, the one who will come to rescue us. Hold that thought and we'll return to it. But the only way that a crucified man can speak I mean, the only way that he can breathe is to hoist himself up to fill his lungs with air. Just a short time in the excruciating pain of standing on a nail driven between your feet. Imagine that. You push up to get the air into your lungs to speak. And this man is using that difficult means of breath to speak and spew words of hatred to Christ of ridicule against him. That motion aggravated and intensified the pain in his body, and yet he spoke out against the Savior. What he and others failed to understand is that Passover lambs do not save themselves. They save you. That's why Christ was there. And as time passed, the other criminal studies Jesus carefully. Because of what Matthew says, that he too spoke words of ridicule against Christ, we know that he's got to be watching what's happening here. You learn a lot about someone by watching how they die. And as he watches, he hears what Jesus prays. He hears this prayer of forgiveness against those who are torturing him. And the other statements that he makes on the cross... And as he watches, as he hears Jesus pray, he hears what Jesus says. He notices also what Jesus does not say, what he does not do. He sees that this is no way of retaliation in any sense, but only of grace. And he watches 
And as he does, his perspective begins to change. As his life ebbs away, his heart is strangely warm, and suddenly that warmth turns to fire as he springs to Jesus' defense. This is shocking to us in the text. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? I think the idea is, brother, look at yourself. You are suffering the wrath of God, and rightly so. Sentence has been passed on you by others, and we deserve what we're getting. But notice where the man's growing perception of reality takes him, verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. That's us. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting judgment. But this man has done nothing wrong. Again, it's shocking to think of one being tortured to death coming to this realization as he's hanging there. He arrives at two crucial convictions. Number one, he is a sinner suffering God's just judgment. And secondly, Jesus is sinless suffering ultimate injustice. Now remember, these criminals are Jewish men from everything that we would know. At least this robber is well aware of Old Covenant promises concerning Messiah. He knows Messiah will reign as a righteous king in the age to come and he will save his people. Now this kid was probably a troublemaker in synagogue. You know, he didn't turn out well by any means. But he understood this much as all Israelites would, he knows that Messiah will reign as a righteous king in the age to come and save his people. He's heard that time and time again. And notice what he then says. Verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a request so stunning that liberal commentators commonly dismiss this verse as fictitious. It was just inserted here by the author, somebody trying to make a point here. They, no criminal would have said that, which is kind of how liberals respond whenever they run up against the new birth. But uh, it's dismissed. I don't think it is all dismissed. They, they do get this thing right in that it is a stunning request. The man knows Jesus is dying. There is no question in anyone's mind he is not coming off this cross alive. And yet he believes Jesus will reign as king. This robber places his hope in the age to come. And he believes Jesus is the Messiah who will reign over that age. The age to come is breaking in upon his soul and he pleads for salvation and a future in Messiah's coming kingdom. So he asks to be with Jesus then and there as he suffers with Jesus here and now. Think about how utterly foolish it would be for this man to talk about his worth and how he deserves to be part of that kingdom. How silly for him to appeal to his good deeds for salvation or his family connections, or the fact that he attended synagogue in his youth and memorized some scripture. 
What does this man have to offer to Jesus by way of defense and support of himself? He has utterly nothing. There's no merits whatsoever. Hopeless in himself, he throws himself upon the merits and saving grace of Christ. It's desperation. And it's so earnest that he speaks to Jesus with that name. Jesus. Savior, rabbi, not master, not rabbi, not sir, not Lord, even, small l, but Jesus. Save me. Well, 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 well. Critics say, what's he going to do, appeal to the Roman soldiers to bring him down? Is he, is he supposed to appeal to his disciples? I mean, they can't even get anywhere near this, so they're going to end up on a cross themselves. They can't rescue him. And it's Passover. Jerusalem was heavily guarded by the most powerful empire on earth. There was no chance that Jewish zealots were going to come along and bring him down and save him somehow. What do you expect from such a desperate man? Jesus was the only one he could throw himself upon in his desperation. And yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Jesus is the only one any of us can throw ourselves upon in desperation. Unbeliever, you who are not yet born again follower of Christ, you may deceive yourself to believe that you're in a better position than this man. Because of your works, because of your family connection, because of your religious ritual, because you're not all that bad of a person, you're in a better spot to present your deeds, your goodness, your parentage, whatever. You're in no better place than he is. And I, I hope that it hit your soul this morning when we sang that phrase. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, Wash all my sins away. No good person in comparison with others will ever stand in the presence of God on their good merits. We all come to Christ as this thief came, in desperation with nowhere else to turn. Our only hope is to receive as a gift through faith alone the forgiveness of sin that Jesus secured for His people by dying in their place, by rising in victory over death and sin and the hell that we deserve. This is where we all meet Christ at His cross as those who deserve nothing but judgment. Our only option is to come in that frame of mind before him this man does in the mercy and grace of God and Jesus then verse 43 says to him truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise Jesus would indeed remember the penitent robber when he established his kingdom as he asked but Jesus also promises the man that he will enter paradise with Jesus that very day 
So as the corpse of Jesus and the corpse of this repentant robber were removed from their crosses, their spirits were reunited in paradise that very day. Paradise related to the Hebrew word for Eden. So that day they entered the celestial delight, the Edenic experience where Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand. The repentant robber left earth in agonizing pain, torturous thirst, condemnation, humiliation. But that same day he entered paradise where all pain and sorrow and despair, where all disease and war and hatred and strife and sin and death are forever gone. The world he left was way on this end of the scale. And the world he entered was all the way on the other end in one moment of time because he put his trust in the only one who could take him there. He did not deserve to be there. And not one of us ever would. He entered only on the merits of Christ because he threw himself on Christ alone for salvation. But by grace, he was there. By grace alone. And by grace alone, he is there to this day. So back to the question. Why put two thieves there on the stage? Why allow them to take away, perhaps in some level, attention from Christ? I think the answer to that was captured well by the great um, theologian Augustine in the 4th century he observed that one of the robbers was damned that no one would presume upon God's mercy. And one of the robbers was saved that no one would ever despair. One robber indeed was lost. And if we refuse to repent of our sins, if we fail to say that they're as vile as he, go I, if we fail to say that, we will go into eternity on our own merits, on our own performance, on who we are as we stand before God, and we will not stand. There is only one entrance in, and that is Christ and his death. So don't presume upon God's mercy. You must come to Christ the Savior. But also we can rejoice to know that the other robber was saved, and no one would have predicted that. No one saw this coming. It matters not who you are or what sins you have committed. Jesus sacrificed his life in order to pay the full punishment in the place of sinners. That's where we must come. The repentant robber could do nothing other than repent and believe. Nor can we. So know this, the mercy and saving merits of Jesus are greater than all your sin. May it, it may be the case, or we don't know the full mind of God, that he placed that robber next to him to say, there is hope for anyone that will trust Christ. And that's what brings us to this table today, to commune together, to come with clear conscience to say that I am depending on the merits of Christ alone. I am depending on his sacrifice to pay the penalty of all of my sin. And in this ongoing rite of the church that we proclaim here, he is Lord. 
His kingdom has broken into this world and will be fully established through eternity on a new earth that will be renewed. Here, though, we say He is Lord. His blood has washed away my sin. I commune with Him, and we commune together as a redeemed people. Here we identify with the spirit of this repentant criminal, just as I am, with no other plea but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Lord, we rejoice together in what you have revealed here at the cross. And we praise you for the rescue of this repentant sinner. We're mindful, Lord, of the end when we do not repent. But we thank you and rejoice together that there is grace and forgiveness in Christ and in Christ alone. As we gather at this table, Lord, steer our hearts to rejoice in the sacrifice that you have made and in the sense of security and trust that we can have that this is not dependent on me. This is Jesus and your grace to us in Christ who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We come and we plead with you and plead in behalf of those who have not come to saving faith in Christ that you draw them in and that around this table we might fellowship in who Christ is and what he's accomplished. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.